Today, I'm pleased to have Mark Price. He's a former Microsoft certified trainer and a current Microsoft specialist in C Sharp. Mark has more than 30 years of educational and programming experience. Since 2015, he has written seven editions of his best-selling book about C Sharp and .NET. The latest is titled C Sharp 11 and .NET 7, Modern Cross-Platform Development Fundamentals. Mark has also written a companion book titled Apps and Services with .NET 7. These are two really big books. Mark, welcome. And I can't start without asking how you possibly wrote such big books in record time. Thank you, Jesse. Um, I'm excited to be back on your podcast. Uh, we've chatted before, um, so it's really nice to uh, catch up again uh, with yourself because uh, in, in my past, I've always learned a lot from your books. So it's, it's always um, a thrill to be on your podcast. Great um, start. But- I think we can just stop right there. <laughs> Yeah, job done. Um, right, yes. Yeah, so to answer your question, um, I a couple of years ago, actually, to, to take a step back, um, I was uh, with my full-time employer at the time. I asked to go to a four-day week. And so for the past couple of editions, the past couple of years, I've been dedicating two days a week, Fridays and Saturdays normally, to uh, writing one book per year. And that's how I was able to keep up to date with all the recent changes in modern .NET. Um, And then this year, because I knew that I wanted to write two books, um, I actually decided to take the risk and quit employment. And so now I'm a full-time, 100% of my time is spent writing books. And that's how I was able able to uh, get a second book available. And um, as you mentioned, they're both very thick books, over 800 pages each. And that's because there is so much to learn these days about modern .NET. Uh, .NET 7, there's so much to it. And lots of new features in C Sharp 11 as well, of course. I'm, I'm not sure whether I'm more astounded by the size and how comprehensive these books are than the fact that you were able to quit your job and make a living in an industry that has been struggling to bring in enough in the face of all the information that's out on the net. So your books must be uh, uh, uniquely successful. I Yeah, it's... it's um... I don't have anything to compare to, of course, but um, apart from my own initial experience. So I can tell you that the first three editions, starting in 2015 or 2016, March it was, when I started writing it in 2015, um, the first three editions sold well enough to have a little bit of extra money to be able to, say, upgrade your iPhone each year and not worry about it, but nothing beyond that. It was really with the fourth edition onwards that it really seemed to uh, reach that quality level, I think, uh, and really fit what people were looking for in a book, um, that it it started to take off well enough. And it's only with the seventh edition this year, uh, or 2022, I'm not sure when this podcast will actually come out, but we're currently early December 2022 at the moment. Um, So it was only this year that I was able to save up enough to be able to take that risk because I really wanted to have that opportunity to have the time to 
write a pair of books that really complement each other and cover all the topics that I wanted to, um, rather than just having uh, one book per year. And I'm really glad that I'm I'm uh, took that risk. We'll see whether it pans out. It might be that you know, I'm going to give it a year until I release the next two editions in November 2023. Um, so yes, for those people, readers who are thinking, uh, well, I'd rather wait for a long-term support uh, edition of the books. Yes, there will be .NET 8 editions of both the C Sharp and .NET book and the Apps and Services book. Um, so if you'd rather wait, I mean, obviously, I, I hope that people will buy them now as well as benefit from the updates um, in November. Um, but if you uh, we're all struggling a bit with the economy at the moment, so I would not be surprised at all if some people would prefer to wait. So, yeah, I'd like to be transparent with all my readers. Yes, there will be updates uh, in November. Can you talk for a moment about the difference between the two books? The first one, C Sharp 11 and .NET 7, I assume is focused mostly on the language. But let's talk a little bit about the two books and what they each cover. Yes, you're right, Jesse. The first book, and so the C Sharp 11 and .NET 7 book, I consider to be the first book. You could even call it like volume one if you wanted to, um, because I have tried to make sure that there's not too much overlap between the two books. Um, that is the one that I recommend starting with. And yes, you're right. It's going to focus primarily on the language and the libraries. So the C Sharp language, all of the keywords and how to uh, do object-oriented programming and write functions and do some basic debugging and unit testing, that type of thing in the first six chapters. And then the next section is primarily on the .NET libraries, the most important uh, classes, for example, within class libraries, things like working with the file system, um, using uh, EF Core to work with databases, um, doing things like regular expressions and working with collections, serialization, yeah, lots of file I.O., uh, things like that. So those are some core components within the libraries. But I also want that first book to be somewhat practical as well. So the third and final part of that book is an introduction to the fundamentals of ASP.NET Core development, which is for web development. So there are, is a chapter on Razor pages, which is a nice, easy way of getting into web development. Uh, and that includes building kind of static or serving up static HTML pages as well. Um, a bit on MVC, the model view controller way of using ASP.NET Core, and building services, as well as even Blazor. Because I think Blazor is such a cool technology. Lots of people want to get into it and at least kind of see what that's all about. So by the end of that first book, you've covered the language, you've covered the most important libraries, and you've been introduced to the fundamentals of web development as well. And that then leads nicely into this new book, this companion book, Apps and Services. And as the name suggests, it's all about then building more practical applications. Uh, all the different service technologies from uh, minimal APIs, which is a simpler way of building kind of classic REST or HTTP style APIs, through uh, more efficient uh, technologies for building microservices with gRPC, the Google-based technology for really efficient microservices, things like SignalR for real-time broadcast-type communication, and even technologies like GraphQL, which was originally developed by Facebook, but then they sort of open-source that. And so it's a .NET implementation of GraphQL. 
um, and even some slightly older technologies like OData. So there's lots of different technologies for working with services. And what a, a good .NET de developer really needs is to be able to see some practical examples of all of those in use and guidance in where they, where they are most useful. Where things then get a little bit trickier to give clear guidance is when you're building graphical user interfaces. Um, because as I think most um, Microsoft-aware developers know, um, Microsoft has been very good in the past about creating platforms and frameworks for building Windows desktop applications from 20 years ago with Windows Forms through uh, WPF, Windows Presentation Foundation, and things like Universal Platform uh, Apps. Um, and to the more cross-platform way of doing things with things like Blazor and the, the very new .NET MAUI, the uh, multi-platform app development kind of platform. And so that, that becomes a little bit trickier because it's, um, I mean, I'd, I, I wouldn't want to say uh, it, it, it's a bit messy. It's not a clean way of saying, well, definitely use Blazor in all situations or definitely use .NET MAUI. Um, particularly if you're interested in, say, trying to do Linux uh, GUIs, because unfortunately Maui doesn't support Linux. Although .NET 7 itself, the core language and libraries, does support Linux, and you can build console apps and web applications and websites and services, all of that works across both Windows, Mac OS, and Linux. If you're building a graphical user interface, then Maui does not support Linux. And Microsoft has pretty much said they're going to leave that open to uh, third parties and open source developers to fill in those gaps. What Microsoft supplies with um, their platform for Maui is support for Windows desktop, for iOS and iPhone and iPad, um, Android, both phone and tab tablet, and uh, Mac OS, but using Catalyst. So it's really... Windows and Mac on the desktop, and iPhone and Android for uh, mobile development. But yeah, at the, certainly at the moment, no, no Linux support there. So yeah, to go back, so the two books, they work really well together. The Apps and Services follows on from the, the first book. How much does your book dive into Maui, given what you just said? There are two chapters in the current edition, the seventh, uh, the first edition, the apps and services with .NET 7. Um, and so it, it, that's enough to kind of cover, it's over 100 pages. Um, I haven't counted actually, I think it's probably closer to 150 pages on Maui. And so it covers a really quick introduction to XAML, the XAML is the acronym there for Extensible Application Markup Language. That's the same XAML type language that was used in WPF and in Silverlight and in WP, um, the, the universal Windows platform apps. Um, so that's been around since 2005, that XAML way of uh, defining the markup language. Um, so we, we introduce that. Uh, then I go into all the common controls and the way to... Uh, navigate around a Maui app and um, then go into some of the newer uh, support for things like uh, desktop applications because, of course, unlike a mobile app, um, you need to support things like menus uh, and integration with the platform, like being able to do toast pop-up notifications. Um, now, those two chapters, so it, it does introduce you to all the fundamentals of Maui to the point where I hope 
that a .NET developer, if they decide, yes, um, this is going to be suitable for me for the type of application that I want to build, uh, rather than, say, maybe trying to go more web development with Blazor, you, you've learned enough to choose, I want to use Maui, and then you could either look at the official documentation to go a bit deeper, or maybe buy another book. Um, I think these days, anyone who's um, really wants to get serious about kind of .NET development or any kind of programming or IT, they typically do buy multiple books. And I think that's really good because it does uh, give you that variety, different authors, different technologies. And so what I try to do with both of my books um, is to give you enough of the concepts and start to build a practical um, implementation of the service technology or the app like in Maui so that you can then make a decision about what you're going to invest your time in. Um, because I think one of the tricky things with uh, any large ecosystem like .NET is just knowing where to start. Um, and so you could very easily buy a dozen books on all the different types of service and all the different types of apps, but then you end up uh, barely reading more than a few, the first few chapters. So uh, my idea was why not take those first few chapters for all of the different technologies and put them all into that one book, Apps and Services. Um, so that's why the title is a bit generic. Yes, multiple different types of building apps, many, many different ways of building services, but you'll learn enough to then make a good, sensible decision about what you want to learn more about. And hopefully you'll be confident enough. You'll have seen some actual code running. You'll, you'll really see some of those benefits um, so that you could just use the free documentation rather than having to buy another book. But but I do recommend um, look at some of the other authors uh, who can then write a bit more specialized book. Yeah, you, 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 as long as I learn at least, say, three or four really useful uh, things about a technology from a book, I think that book's been well worthwhile. I want to get into some of the details about C Sharp 11 with you, but first I'm going to ask you, I, I have a uh, non-trivial demonstration program that is on the client side, but that needs a back end to have the client talk to, get information from, and uh, you can imagine that there's a second user who's also writing to that back end and we're exchanging information. Would your book be a good resource for figuring out how to write that back end and have Maui talk to it? Yes, um, because you you do get to, I'm just trying to remember now specifically what, I think it's just a, um, a kind of web API as the back end service for the specific examples that I use with .NET Maui. Um, but because in the earlier chapters when I'm uh, showing you how to implement the various different services, I do show both uh, if it's a web-oriented technology that might use, say, JavaScript uh, calling a making HTTP calls, um, I will show how to use the JavaScript as a client as well as using .NET as a client, uh, typically using a simple console application as the client to the service. And so everything that you could do in a .NET client, you can also do in .NET MAUI. So you could then uh, take the uh, example code that you've learned in the chapter that was specifically about, say, gRPC or for SignalR, and just copy and paste that code into a .NET Maui app, and that will work fine. 
Um, one of the things that I'm trying to kind of survey my readers about, and I'm I'm really going to be interested in hearing feedback from any of the readers of the the second companion book, this Apps and Services book, is what they want to see in a second edition. Um, because it's over the next six to nine months that I'm going to be writing that second edition. And although it's already getting good reviews on Amazon, um, I'm very, very open, particularly right now, to uh, hearing what readers want, really want to know. So um, even if it's a case of it might not be in the second edition print book, but if it's really important to readers to then see an actual .NET MAUI client calling all of the different types of service on the back end, that's something that I could put in the GitHub repository for the second edition and just have a, a short pointer to that in the, uh, in the book. Um, one of the, just as a slight aside, the very last chapter of the Apps and Services book, chapter 20, is a, um, a challenge to the reader. And so what I've it's a fairly short chapter, but one of the challenges that uh, .NET developers have when they're learning .NET is, is having a, a real-world project to actually work on to practice their skills. And if you're employed in an enterprise-type environment, you might be working on .NET projects in a particular area, but it's unlikely to then cover all of the different types of service and all the different types of apps that you could create. So it might be a bit frustrating for you if you're not actually practicing this in the, in the real world. Um, so I was trying to think of the type of a type of project that could potentially cover all the different technologies. And so the idea that I came up with was a uh, survey survey type or polling type software. So you might want to have a website or some kind of app that allows you to define a set of questions in different formats, like multiple choice or uh, what, selecting one out of many or checkboxes or uh, ordering a list and priority or just rich text typing in, uh, clicking on a map, all these different types of things that either a survey type of software or a live polling type of software um, or even a kind of um, quiz type type thing. Um, and the nice thing about that is that you it could be a combination of different services, um, the analytics for that, the showing of the reports at the end. You've got some nice graphical charts and things, various different interactive components that you could build. So it has a nice variety, almost infinite um supply of ideas for the different visual components. So you've got the front end idea of practicing it, as well as the back end services. And of course, then data storage, whether it would be better to store it in relational store like an SQL server or more of a cloud-based NoSQL type thing like uh, uh, Cosmos DB. Um, and so in that chapter, um, I describe a, um, give a kind of product uh, product definition uh, suggests some things that would be in a minimally viable product if you were to implement that, as well as lots of extensions that you could do. And what I'm going to be doing myself is uh, producing a solution to that over the next six to nine months. Um, and I think that will really help, particularly with the second edition, if you've got that type of, type of thing to refer to. Um, so if I'm being really ambitious, what I would maybe do is have a .NET MAUI app uh, on the on the mobile phone, for example, or on the on desktop, 
So it's cross-platform, can work on both. But that can be pulling the data from a service and kind of just swap out what the service is actually using in order to illustrate the pros and cons of all the different technologies. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, hopefully, some of the readers who are a bit more ambitious will also have a go at that. And um, that's a really great thing to then discuss in, in forums. And actually, that's something that I really want to highlight to all my readers is come and join me and other readers on the Discord channels. My publisher, Pact, um, manages those channels. Um, they're Depending on the book, most of their books now have their own dedicated channels. So you can uh, join, ask questions, talk to the actual authors, talk to other readers. And I've been very pleased over the last uh, three or four months uh, already the older editions were quite uh, active for the C-sharp and .NET channels, um, and I'm um, starting to get more people asking questions in the apps and services and the C-sharp 11 channel as well. So yeah, come and join us there and discuss things like uh, what you'd like to see in a second edition. Sorry, that's quite a long <laughs> rambling answer there. I hope, hope you'll be no, able to cut great. that down in the edit. <laughs> no, no, it was great. Uh, let's turn our attention to C-sharp for a moment. And my theory is that there are uh, two types of C-sharp developers at this point with respect to the uh, C-sharp 11. That is those who were up to speed on C-sharp 10 and are now interested in what C-sharp 11 has done. And then another group, and I don't know whether it's bigger or smaller, of people who more or less are proficient in, say, C-sharp 6 or 7 and are beginning to feel a bit left behind as the language evolves so quickly. Uh, so perhaps we can speak to both of those when we talk about the new features in C-sharp 11. Yes, I, I agree with you. I think there are probably are a couple of audiences. Um, in fact, there was a um, someone tweeted and kind of was asking for feedback about uh, how many people were working on projects on the older .NET framework, how many people were already working on what I call modern .NET. So that's what came from .NET Core, say versions .NET 5, 6, and now 7. Whether things like long-term support or the new standard term support, which is only 18 months, is that important to you, and that type of thing. And so it from, from the responses that that tweet got, it does seem as if there is still a lot of real-world projects which are actively running on the old .NET framework, um, even going back to versions like 4.5.2 type thing. Um, some of those are then starting to work on or migrate those projects, those old .NET framework projects. Uh, they might have already migrated it to .NET Core 3.1, um, uh, or more likely they're trying to jump immediately to .NET 6. So .NET 6 is now just over a year old, but it is what's called a long-term support release. That means that it's going to be guaranteed to be supported by Microsoft for three years. So for, for now, at the end of 2022, it's still going to get support for another two years. Whereas .NET 7, that was released uh, in November 2022, so just a month or so ago in uh, where we are right now, um, that is a what used to be called a current release, but is now has been renamed to a standard term support release, STS. 
Uh, that only has 18 months of official support from Microsoft, which means that .NET 7 will reach its end of life in um, May 2024, whereas .NET 6 will last another six months until November 2024. Um, so there are a lot of particularly enterprise customers who have decided that they won't go to .NET 7, even though it's the latest version, and it does have lots of good benefits like uh, improved performance and some of the nice new features in C Sharp 11, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, instead, they're going to stick with the .NET 6 version the, because it has this long-term support. And, and so if you're going to have to continue to target .NET 6, uh, for the majority of your uh, projects, then it then raises the question about, well, it's a shame that we can't use the new stuff in .NET 7. And, and um, maybe we might have uh, learnt up to C Sharp 10. There's that audience, as you're, as you're mentioning. They are already kind of up to date with C Sharp 10 and .NET 6 features, um, but they're just missing what's new in .NET 7. I suspect that half of those probably... Uh, are saying to themselves, well, I kind of am, am interested. I've heard a few rumors about what's in C Sharp 11, but my business, we're not going to upgrade to it. We're going to wait for .NET 8 next year or in 2023. Um, and so there's no point learning this new thing anyway because we can't use it. Now, I would point out to those uh, developers that you can safely install both .NET 6 and .NET 7 SDKs on your developer machine. And that means that you could create a new project that can use the .NET 7 SDK and its C Sharp 11 compiler, but the project can still target .NET 6. And that allows you to use the new features in the C Sharp 11 compiler, for example, uh, raw, uh, raw, literal str raw string literals, which is really handy, just makes it really clean and easy to define uh, the content of a string without having to worry about special characters. Um, you just use um, two or more quotes to start and end the string. Um, and so it makes it really easy to copy and paste, say, some XML or some JSON, just uh, paste it between um, say three double quotes at the beginning and end. Uh, you can set the level of indentation that it's going to use as well. Uh, that is one of the nicest new features in C Sharp 11. So you can use that kind of feature because ultimately all you're doing is using that new feature of the compiler, but the end result is still going to be a .NET 6 targeting assembly. And so you can just deploy that onto your server that has the latest .NET 6 runtime and you've got kind of the best of both worlds. There are some features of C Sharp 11, though, that actually are tightly bound to a class in the .NET 7 libraries. And so that means even though it might look like a C Sharp 11 keyword, and it's therefore only needs the updated compiler, actually, if you're targeting, say, .NET 6 in that particular project, you'll get a compiler error warning you that actually you can't use that feature. And the canonical example that I'd like to give for that is the new required keyword. So um, if you imagine that you've got a simple 
class that's using to model some data, uh, an employee record, for example, you may have some properties on that class that you want to make sure are set. Now, back in the older versions of C-sharp, you would have created a non-default constructor, i.e. a constructor with parameters, uh, and just not created a uh, empty constructor, a default constructor. And that would force the developer using your class to call that constructor, pass in the parameters, and therefore set those properties that you want to make sure have been set properly. And that's how you basically do required properties in the past. Now, in C-sharp 11, there is a new keyword just called required. So instead of having to mess around by manually creating constructors, you can simply decorate the properties that you want to be set with the keyword required. Now that, to uh, us just looking at the code, looks like all they've done is introduce a new C-sharp keyword. And if you're targeting .NET 7, it just works. And you'll just get compile errors if you try and instantiate an instance of that class and not set that in, say, uh, an initialization uh, in the curly brackets type syntax. It'll, the compiler will force you to do that. But if you then try and use this little trick that I talked about where you're using the best of both, where you're trying to use the C-sharp 11 compiler, but you're targeting .NET 6, the compiler is smart enough to say, actually, you can't do that. Because internally, what the compiler is having to do when you decorate a property with a required keyword is that's actually then having to internally decorate that, those properties with special attributes which only exist in the .NET 7 libraries. And therefore, it says, sorry, you can't actually use that C-sharp 11 feature. So one of the things that I uh, didn't have time to do in the print books, but which I want to do as a kind of free online article in the GitHub repositories, is to actually kind of create a matrix to show a list of which C-sharp 11 features you can use, even if you're targeting older versions of .NET, and which ones actually require .NET 7 as well. And I think that's going to be really useful. So required you have to not only use the 11 compiler, but also target .NET 7, whereas things like raw string literals, you can use that and target, say, .NET Standard 2, which would still work with .NET Framework, for example. Um, but just having that list, that matrix, I think would be really useful for... Oh, for yes, I want that matrix. And, and when <laughs> it's ready, please let me know, because <laughs> that shall. would be very, very useful for us. Um <clears throat> Where it's clear to me, even before I go to my next question, that I'm going to ask if you would be willing to come back for part two of this, because we barely scratched the surface on what's new in C-sharp 11, and I have quite a few questions on that. And uh, just to give a, uh, a preview, uh, if I can talk you into that, I think that we want to talk about uh, C-sharp 11 new features and which of them are useful. And then yes. we may want to talk some about C-sharp 11 and some of the upgrades to ancillary services like um, EF Core. Um, yes. And, and uh, then sort of overarching questions about building these two books and keeping them current. So there's quite a bit to talk about. Why don't we focus in for now on what is new in C-sharp 11 or even 10 slash 11 that you find particularly useful? Okay, yes. So my personal favorite feature in C-sharp 11 uh, is the raw string literals. So in the past, even from the very first version of C-sharp 20 years ago, 
you've always been able to use just double quote characters to indicate the beginning and end of a string. And if you're just typing, say, a plain text uh, sentence, that's all you need, nice and simple. But once you start getting into, if that string represents, for example, a file path with backslashes, um, or if that string represents some XML or some JSON or some other uh, structured format, then it can get a bit tricky. Because when you're just defining a string using double quotes at the beginning and end, you also need to be able to represent other special characters like a tab or a new line uh, or a line break, that type of thing. And so backslashes, unless you do anything else, a backslash actually indicates that you're going to do an escape character uh, or an escape sequence in order to find some kind of special character. So even since C-sharp version one, you've had the ability to kind of switch off that by prefixing the double quotes with an at symbol. Um, and so since the beginning of C-sharp, you've had these various different techniques that you could use to uh, represent the actual characters within the string. And some are easier than others, but and they can sometimes get a bit messy. And so I, it's, it's a shame it's taken this long, but in C-sharp 11, if you use, say, three double quotes at the beginning of the string, then you can just copy and paste any textual representation and then do another three double quotes at the end. And you can choose how much you want to indent that value uh, by indenting the final three double quotes. And it will then remove that level of indentation. So you can, you can cleanly indent just for readability of code. And you can control whether those indentations are actually interpreted as part of the string characters or not. You can even then also combine that with string interpolation, uh, string interpolation expressions. So I th I can't remember what version of C sharp those were introduced. Was it C sharp three or not? But anyway, within your string, you can use curly braces to indicate an expression, a kind of live executable code expression, and then the result of that expression is then embedded into the string. And that's a really nice feature. Um, now, if you're trying to represent some J some JavaScript object notation, JSON, um, then it's going to get confused between, well, is that curly brace the beginning of a uh, string interpolation expression, or is that curly brace just a brace within the JSON? And so if you're using this new raw string literal syntax, then you can also uh, prefix the, the quotes that say the three three double quote characters with a number of dollar signs. So I could add in two dollar signs, and that would mean that if you see two dollars, two open curlies, then that indicates a expression that should be executed rather than the actual character curly braces. And if you say, well, actually, I already I need to have two curly braces, um, and that just should be interpreted as two curly braces, then use three dollars or four dollars or five dollars. So it's a really simple idea, but this idea of having multiple double quote characters and multiple dollar characters, um, and you can represent anything in a really clean, easy to read and understand way. And that, that's fantastic. A somewhat related feature to that is just simply being able to put a new line 
carriage return in the middle of one of those curly brace string interpolation uh, expressions. In fact, this is something I I hadn't even really thought about in the past that it didn't work. Um, If you've just got a very short string and in the middle you've got a pair of curly braces and some expression in there, uh, 1 plus 2, x plus y, whatever it happens to be, um, if it's a very short expression, then you probably haven't even tried to press carriage return or do a new line in the middle of that expression. But what you will find is that if you're using C-sharp 10 or earlier, the compiler will complain. And so if you've got a fairly long expression within the curly braces, then it's got to stay all on that one line. And horizontal space, particularly for a book writer, is really valuable um, because we have to fit within the print page. So these kind of features are, are really useful, particularly for book writers, but just for any developer who is trying to type in a long, complex expression within their string interpolation expression, uh, being able to now do a carriage return, spread it out over multiple lines, uh, and the compiler just says, okay, yep, I can handle that, as it should be able to, because you can do that outside of a uh, string interpolation expression. You know, If you're just typing in a regular C-sharp expression anywhere else in code, it all works, and you can just put your new lines wherever you like. Um, so now in C-sharp 11, you can do it right in the middle of your string as well. So those, those two are really cool. Um, now, there are some new features in C-sharp 11 which are very cool and interesting, like generic math support. Uh, what that means is that the, uh, the .NET libraries now have dozens and dozens of new interfaces that represent the capabilities that numbers should have if you're trying to perform arithmetic on those numbers, um, like just being able to reset to zero or be able to add two numbers together or multiply two numbers. So all of that, we've always had these basic uh, operators like plus and divide and subtract. Uh, That's been in the language since the very beginning. But we now have some formal interfaces that a type can therefore implement in order to add that kind of functionality. And because it's now kind of formalized, it allows developers to define their own number types. Now, that's very advanced type thing. Almost no .NET developer will need to define their own type of number. You know, doubles and ints and even big number um, or these various different complex uh, complex number, things like that. It's already in the language and in, in the libraries. So it would be very, very, very unlikely that a .NET developer who's just writing business applications would need to literally define your own special type of number with the ability to add and divide and things like that. But because it has now been kind of broken out and formalized using this, con- this thing called generic math, um, It does allow, say, a library writer who may be much more likely to actually need to do that to actually do it. It's now part of uh, C-sharp 11 and .NET 7. Um, I mentioned the required keyword. Um, I think that will just be, that's kind of a refinement. Um, You can just use constructors to control whether a particular property or field within a class has been set, you could still use that technique. Required is just a a nice, cleaner way of doing it. Um, Microsoft, since about C-sharp version 6, has been adding more and more functional programming type um, capabilities to C-sharp, in particular, various ways of doing pattern matching. And... 
Uh, so one of the new things in C-sharp 11 related to pattern matching is list patterns. So if you've got a collection or an array, um, then you can write a very clean, say, a, a switch expression, which then matches on, is it an, an empty array or does it only have one item or does it have at least three items and they're these specific values? And it's a very nice, succinct way of doing pattern matching against list type constructions. There's a, there's a lot to say about pattern matching, and uh, I think in, in in part two of our conversation, I'd like to dive a bit deeper into pattern matching. It, it's um, first of all, it's relatively new. Uh, it's been it's been added to over the last few versions of C sharp, but in my experience, there are an awful lot of C sharp developers who really have not yet gotten their head around it, uh, both in terms of how to do it, but more importantly, when to do it. So that's that's a conversation I would look forward to having about where patterns fit into the day-to-day -day programming. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt your, your discussion of all the new features in, in 11, but I wanted to lay down a bookmark for that. Absolutely, yes. I would uh, love to have that discussion with you in the, the next time we meet up. And in fact, it, that kind of fits in quite neatly because I'd kind of got to the end of my list of off the top of my head what the best new features or I think the most practical maybe new features in C Sharp 11, those are the ones that I would list. Um, there are more, but they tend to be a, a bit more obscure. Um, but yeah, pattern matching, I 100% agree. So yes, I think it was C Sharp 6 where Microsoft first started to add in more of those kind of pattern matching and functional programming style. Um, but every version of C Sharp since then, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and I'm sure probably in 12, there'll be a few more new features. Microsoft has expanded on those capabilities. And um, in the current edition of the, the apps and services, because I recognize that some of my readers may, if they're already up to say C-sharp 10, and they're quite comfortable with that, maybe they bought the sixth edition that covers C-sharp 10 and .NET 6. Uh, and so they see these two new books now that's come out. Should they buy the C-sharp 11 book or should they buy the new apps and services book? I'd recommend, hey, you, you've learned enough now. You could just go to the Microsoft official documentation, search for uh, what's new in C-sharp 11, and just read through Microsoft's article in the online documentation. Um, you don't really need to buy a new edition of my book just for that. Just read what's new there. Um, and instead, what I did in the apps and services with .NET, 6, uh, .NET 7, uh, this new book, is in the first chapter, I've got a section about what's new in modern, modern C-sharp. And so I've tried to summarize since... Uh, C sharp eight onwards, what were the new features that were added in? So I've listed or added a lot of those kind of pattern matching type technologies in there as well. Now, what I, in this first edition of apps and services, it's, it's very, uh, timeline based or just what was in .NET 6, what's in .NET or what's in .NET 8, what's in .NET 9, what's in .NET 10, that type of thing. Whereas one of the things that I'm already 90% sure that I want to do in the next edition is that I want to uh, rewrite that chapter and make it more theme based. So there will be a section on pattern matching and it will cover all of the new features from C-sharp 6 up to C-sharp 12 in a much more cohesive way. 
So now I think we're now at this point where there's enough features that have been added all over all of those versions that rather than saying what was in six and what was in seven and what was in eight, better just to talk about it in a much more um, high level theme of everything about pattern matching. And like you say, when would you use this? Why is it beneficial? Um, and and maybe just have a note of which version it was actually in. So if someone is perhaps uh, limited to only using up to C sharp ten, then at least they know which of those features wouldn't will or won't work for them. And that also allows me to do other themes like nulls, null handling, because you've got the basics of the, the concept of nulls and reference types compared to value types. Uh, going back to very early versions of C-sharp, but then in C-sharp 8 was when Microsoft then added in the major changes to null handling and doing null warning checks. And so again, they've added uh, small improvements to that feature over every version. But really, I think it's now at that point where almost all of the .NET 7 libraries have been properly annotated. Uh, more and more third-party libraries and developers are a bit more aware of it. Now's the time to write a section that kind of looks at null handling holistically and just has a, by the way, this was then introduced in what the version is. Do you think that makes sense, Jesse? Well, I think that makes tremendous sense. And um, beginning to really look forward to the second edition uh, already, um, I have worked my way through almost entirely book one, that is C-sharp 11 and .NET 7, I confess to uh, barely scratch the surface on your second volume, but you have uh, piqued my interest tremendously. So I will be looking at that and looking forward to the next edition where you flesh out some of the, uh, and bring together some of the features such as pattern matching. I, I have uh, Bill Wagner from Microsoft coming uh, very soon on to another podcast, and we'll be discussing some of that evolution there as well. So it'll make a good complement to our conversation. Excellent. Excellent. I'll look forward to that. Yes, definitely. Well, I can't thank you enough. This has been uh, tremendously informative, and uh, the the scope and breadth of your knowledge is, is, is awesome. And uh, I'm hoping that we will be able to do part two of this very soon. Yes, me too. I'm excited to chat again and go into things in a bit more detail. Thank you very much for inviting me, Jesse. Well, thank you. I'm I'm going to uh, bring this part one now, we'll call it, to a, to a close and look forward to part two. Excellent. Thank you very much.